Nehemiah chapter 10. Thank you, uh, Matt and Al, for speaking over the last two weeks. My family very much appreciated the time away, the time off. And uh, now it's back to get into to Nehemiah as we look at kingdom work and a covenant people. So let me remind you of how we've gotten this far in the book of Nehemiah. Obviously, Nehemiah comes back. There's a great project of building the wall up. Once the wall is built, now it's a project of creating for himself a people, God's people that belong inside the city. And so what has happened is this is around the year 444 BC in the seventh month, somewhere mid-September, mid-October. And the word of God has been read. It's been read and it's been explained and expounded. And uh, there's been a great time of celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. And now they're back again on the 24th day of the month, and they've gathered once again in Jerusalem. And once again, they're listening to God's word for a three-hour time of reading the law of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, and they they are pierced with conviction. And this conviction now moves to a response. And so what is the response going to be? It's going to be, we're going to make a covenant. We're going to renew our covenant with God. And so you see at the end of chapter 9, verse 38, because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. A covenant. So one, I'd like to see kingdom work and a people of covenant. I'm going to spare you a lot of these names, so let's look at verse 1 and then pick up there down in verse 28. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah, the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. Let's stop right there. What is a covenant? A covenant, well, is an agreement which brings about a relationship of commitment between two parties, namely here, God and his covenant people. What What comes to mind when you hear the word covenant? For me, it's marriage. Marriage is the first thing that comes to mind. And I remember being a 21 year old and you might think, wow, that's super young. And Now that I'm not 21, it is super young. Being 21 years of age and standing at the altar, looking at my bride and just weeping. I mean, I could not get it together. I was crying, not, uh, there were tears of joy. Let me make sure you know that. So tears of joy, I could not get it together. I was super excited. And we, uh, we went through the ceremony and there was this one part of the ceremony where the pastor who was officiating had written us a 10 year anniversary card. And he read the card and he wrote vows down in the card. And I, I've totally ripped this off. So every, every marriage that I've got to officiate, I'm like, here's a 10-year anniversary card. But I, that he wrote all these things down and he sealed it up and he said, don't open this for 10 years. And so we, we had that and we walked over and we did the unity candle and I snapped the candle in half trying to get it off the candelabra. And it was just a big mess. It was just hanging there. And we were supposed to have this really special moment where we, where we confessed our undying love for each other and my wife told me some story about a bird attacking her in her wedding dress. And then she says, what did you have for me? And I was like, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm just lost now. I don't know. You told me some crazy story. So I tell you all of that to say, we, we finished the wedding ceremony and we went out and we signed the papers, right? You remember you signed the wedding certificate 
There's a witness there. The pastor signs it. Jump ahead 10 years. 10 years. This card has been sitting in the cabinet for 10 years. We cannot wait to read it. It's been a long time. We don't even remember what it was said. You know, that was back when there was VHS. And so we had a recording of our, of our marriage, but I think I recorded over it with like a sports event. I don't know. So didn't remember what was said in there. And I'm taking my wife to dinner and we're going to read the card. And I was like, I forgot the card. And she says, no big deal. I don't care. You know, like, we'll just read it later. And I was like, no, it's a big deal. So we, we go back to the house and she doesn't know this, but there's a whole backyard full of family and friends. And Pastor Al was there and we renewed our vows. And we opened that card and we read them again. Here I am about to cry again. Tears of joy, right? So we're, we're having this moment. This is the image I want you to see when the people of God are now met with the word of God. They've read the word of God. They've read it for hours and hours and hours and they are convicted and they are led to this point of, I want to renew my vows to God. This is the people of God renewing their vows. This is a covenant relationship. So be a covenant commitment to what? Why? Verse 29, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord and his rules and his statutes. They're making a covenant commitment to observe all of God's commands. Not some. It's not partial. It's a, I commit to do all of it. I'm here. So let me explain this from a new covenant uh, understanding because it's necessary, because if we look at this as I need, to, I need to follow these rules so that I'm approved of by God, that's, that's works-based, that's not grace-based. And so a new covenant understanding of this is that they are reading their vows, they're, they're re-signing their vows out of a love relationship for God. John 14, 5, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them He it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. There's this loving relationship, a covenant commitment to a covenant obedience that comes from a covenant love. There's a love that is driving obedience. So covenant commitment, covenant obedience, and covenant love are a major theme in Scripture between God and his people. Scripture reveals to us that God is a faithful covenant-keeping God even when we are not a covenant-keeping people. This is, the, this is the beautiful picture of God's faithfulness from Genesis to Revelation, that he is a covenant-keeping God. We've seen this in Nehemiah already, in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 5. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Nehemiah 9.32, now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. God is a covenant-keeping God, even when we're not a covenant-keeping people. There's a difference between a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. A covenant of works says, you do these things, and you can remain in a right standing with me. A covenant of grace says, I will do these things for you so that you can be in a right relationship with me. Aren't you so thankful that there's a covenant of grace because we are incapable of being a covenant-keeping people? Amen. 
So what do the covenants look like as you go through Scripture? Edenic covenant, Noahic covenant, Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant, Davidic covenant, New covenant. You see covenants coming up over and over and over throughout the Old Testament. Well, it all began in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, God created Adam and Eve, and the Lord commanded man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Here's the covenant. If you will obey this, you can have eternal life. How did that go for mankind? Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam was incapable of keeping the covenant of works. All mankind is incapable of keeping, keeping the covenant of works. So as time goes on, God is a faithful covenant-keeping God. Psalms 105.8, he remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations. 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. He is a covenant-keeping God. As sin began to reign and spread throughout the entire earth, he makes another covenant with Noah. In Genesis 9, 12 through 17, and God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I will make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the clouds and it shall be a sign of a covenant between me and all the earth. So the sign of promise is a sign of God's faithfulness. It's a bow that is placed in the sky. It is not a sign of prideful rebellion against the covenant maker. After God makes his covenant with Noah, evil continues to ruin the world. So God chooses a man, a pagan man named Abram. And he says, Abram, I'm going to make you a great nation and I'm going to bless the nations through your, your descendants. You're going to be my covenant people. And so he establishes this with circumcision by the removal of the flesh as a symbol that he will one day remove our sin. He demonstrates this by providing a sacrifice rather than allowing Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, foreshadowing the only son of God who would be the sacrificial lamb who takes away the sins of the world. God is a covenant-keeping God. He then draws his people out of Egypt, and he says, I will make a covenant with you, the Mosaic covenant. In Deuteronomy 28.1, and if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all of his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth. Deuteronomy 28.15, though, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God and be careful to do all the commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Well, as we see, the people of Israel were unable to keep that covenant, the covenant of law. And sure enough, they were exiled. They were taken out. The Babylonians came in and exiled them, and now they're back, and Nehemiah is trying to put all the pieces back together, building a wall, putting the people together, and he's saying, listen, this was the covenant that God made with us, and they said, listen, we'll do all of it. We're going we're to do better this time. I got news for you. God's a faithful covenant-keeping God, even when we're not faithful covenant-keeping people. So he makes promises that through the line of David, there would be one who would come. That one day he would write his law on our hearts. That he would fill us with his spirit. That there would be a new covenant people that, that are his people. And he would be their God. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. 
For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As we see the covenant-keeping God throughout the entire Bible, we see this, that in 2 Corinthians 1.20, Paul says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Every promise, every covenant is fulfilled in Christ, not in our obedience. We are incapable. There's a difference between a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. And we are a people who have been filled with his spirit and given the grace of God because we are incapable on our own. So a covenant people. Two, a kingdom work and a people of conviction. So as they sign this covenant, they're now, they're now going to put some application to it. Okay, so if this is going to be our obedience, then where do we even begin? And so let's read there verse 30. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. A, a conviction to change. There was a conviction to change. We will either live in the conviction of God's word or in compromise to God's word. There really is a narrow path and a wide path. There's a path that says, I'm going to live in conviction. I'm going, to, I'm going to see what God has called me to be. He's written his word on my heart, and so I'm going to follow hard after him. Or there's a broad path that says, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm just going to do my best, and I, you know, everybody else is doing it this way. And where there is no conviction, there will be no lasting change. See, compromise serves our desires, where conviction shapes our behavior. Compromise is common. Conviction is rare. Compromise takes the broad path where conviction takes the narrow. So let me ask you, is your life shaped by a covenant conviction to God's word or by a cultural convenience of the crowd? It's not legalism, it's spiritual transformation. Ephesians 4, through 24, Paul again would say, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through the deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. It's a conviction to change. A conviction to change and a spiritual transformation is more than adapting and following religious actions to promote personal piety. It's not trying to look good. It's not trying to earn God's favor. It's not trying to keep God on your good side. It's not simply a moral conformity and behavior modification to be a good person in an effort to remain in God's good standing. If this is our understanding of why we are obedient, then we have missed the point of obedience to God's word. Obedience is through conviction. It is that God wants to mold us and shape us and change us more and more into the image of his son. And so a life of conviction has application. There's application when we're convicted by God's word. We can't just read it and say, hmm, that was good, and then go on without any application to it. 
<laughs> the, uh, that was pretty funny. All right, so uh, the, uh, you see this in the Jerusalem Council, that there is action that takes place. And so they're trying to say, okay, so what do we do with all of these Gentiles who are coming to faith? There's got to be something that we tell them they must do. And so we read this, but some men came from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, which means they probably got into an argument, Paul and Barnabas had some of the others who were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after they had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did us. And he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed our hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? He said, listen, you can't begin to put them back under the law because we were never able to carry out the law. It's not a covenant of works. It's a covenant of grace. And so why would you say this? So verse 19, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. And he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So there is some application that takes place from conviction. So he says they should abstain from the things polluted by idols. Why? Not for salvation, but for the sanctification and holiness that God desires for you. There's no, you must do this to be saved. That now that you're saved, there should be some application of what God is doing in your heart. You should abstain from sexual morality. Why? Not for salvation, but for the sanctification and the holiness that God desires for you. So conviction from God's word is what sets us on a trajectory of sanctification through obedient application. Compromising God's word sets us on a trajectory of spiritual decay through disobedient sins of omission and commission. Are you a person of conviction today? A conviction to avoid sexual compromise. This is where they begin to apply it. This is what we've seen even in the Jerusalem Council, that there's an application to avoid sexual compromise. The modern reader might think that this is a racial issue, but it's not. It's a religious issue. They have read God's word. They've seen that that there have been people brought into the lineage of Israel that were not... um, Jewish people, an Ethiopian woman, Rahab the harlot, um, the Ruth the Moabite, all brought in. And so this isn't a racial issue. It's more of an issue of as they read the accounts, they saw that through sexual sin, there was a tendency for God's people to be pulled away from conviction. That as they allowed different marriages to take place, it then led to them to make different idols to have their hearts pulled away from the Lord. And so we too today, as we look at this, we realize that this is often an issue for being a person of conviction. 2 Corinthians 6, 14. 
Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? The yoke being what is placed on two animals. If it's placed on two animals that one is stronger and one is weaker, you're going to have problems in plowing. One animal will be stronger and the other one will be weaker. It could cause them to go in circles. It could cause them to, to, to not make any progress whatsoever. And so as Paul says, he says, listen, if you are entering into a relationship that is unequally yoked, you're going to put yourself in a situation of no spiritual progress outside of the grace of God. And so if you're in a dating relationship right now and you know that you're in a dating relationship with an unbeliever, I pray for your conviction. I'm not going to tell you that it's legalism, but I'm going to tell you that God has something for you that if you allow yourself to be pulled away, to be unequally yoked, it's going to be very hard for you moving forward. And, and if you're in a marriage where you know that you're married to an unbeliever, I pray for the grace of God to give you the strength to continue to plow forward in a, in a right relationship with him. Ephesians 5, 1 through 3. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. There is a conviction that takes place. How many believers today claim to have a saving grace of God but yet they refuse to submit to the moral decree declared in God's word to remain sexually pure. As Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both, one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do, not, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who has joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual morality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual and moral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. What we see from Scripture is the area of sexual compromise has been and continues to be the doorway for Satan to infiltrate the church and cause many to compromise their conviction and to shipwreck their faith. We know it's true. It seems to be an area that should be an area of conviction. The second part, C, the conviction to avoid Sabbath compromise. Verse 31. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. So why the Sabbath? Well, two reasons. Number one, the Sabbath was a visible reminder to the people of God that they were God's people and a visible reminder to the nations that they were different. 
Two, the Sabbath gave them a weekly chance to declare God's lordship over their lives. Now, the Sabbath today is no longer commanded in the New Testament because we find our rest in him. But Colossians would say this, Colossians 2, 16 through 70, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question to food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The New Testament points us towards worship on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, Acts 27. On the first day of the week, when they were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. He preached and preached and preached, and sometimes I feel like I'm preaching and preaching and preaching, but we just keep going. So the New Testament is how is now showing us that through Christ's resurrection, we have rest. We rest now in the finished work of Christ, knowing that he has provided for us and that he is our Lord. So we gather together as believers on the first day of the week, not as a matter of the law, but as a visible reminder to us and to the world of his grace, that he has brought us together. So church is an instrument of grace. We are here gathered together as saints declaring the lordship of Christ when there's a world of darkness all around us. Through the gathering of the saints, we have a visible reminder that God is working out our sanctification in in all types of varying degrees. Through the gathering of the saints, we are equipped for every good work. And through the gathering of the saints, we are disciplined and we are discipled for holiness. And this is why the writer of Hebrews would say, let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Thirdly, kingdom work and a people of commitment. Nehemiah 10, 32 through 39. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moon, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground from the first fruits of all fruit of every tree, year by year, to the house of our Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priest who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks. And to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priest, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from, the, from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive these tithes. I'll stop right there. A covenant commitment to contribute. They were people of commitment. They were committed to contributing to 
the house of God. And so basically, put it in today's terms, you put your money where your worship is. You really do. If you, if you take an inventory of where you spend your money, you, you put your money where your worship is, where, where you find value, where things are worth something to you. So worth-ship, worship, is what you will invest in. And the people here, as they've read God's word, they came to a point where they said, you know, we're, we're, we're going to be a people of covenant. We're going to be, be a people who sign it down. We're going to renew our vows. Now we're going to be a people of conviction. There's going to be some application. We're going to start walking in obedience here. And we're also going to be a people who are committed to the gathering, to the worship of God. And so how better to be committed than to put your money where your mouth is? And so they begin to, to plan and to look forward to giving a tithe. Now, the tithe is a biblical principle that was established before the Mosaic Law. And so there's a lot of debate sometimes when people talk about the tithe. Well, that's Old Testament, but there's also New Testament giving. And if you want to break down the difference in Old Testament giving and New Testament giving, there's still giving. And so you just need to be understanding that there's, there's a gift that is to be given that says, I am putting my, my, my worth into worship. We see in Genesis 14, 20, And blessed be God, most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. This is when Melchizedek, the priestly king, comes out of nowhere with no lineage. And he is a precursor that shows that he's going to be the lineage of Christ, that, he is, that Christ is the priest king. And so even from the very beginning, there is a worship of Jesus that is in the giving. A covenant commitment, a planned generosity. 2 Corinthians 9, 6-7. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. As we read this account, there was a planned giving. We've all planned out who's going to be giving, what houses are going to be giving. They're, they're thinking about every single area of temple worship that needs to be offered to. And so they're working through the plan here of sowing and reaping, which is a natural law. It is not some superstitious law. It's a natural law that what you put in, you will get out. Galatians 6, verses 7 through 10 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as you have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially to those who are in the household of faith. Church is about being committed a body of believers who are committed to one another, who walk through life as a family, who help one another, disciple one another, discipline one another, work with one another as we worship God together. Church is not about what you can get out of it. Church is about what you can give to it. If you put your whole self into the gathering of believers, you will reap so much more than you could ever imagine. But if you are not committed to the gathering, if you're only slightly involved, if you never allow yourself to be in a genuine fellowship, you will miss out on so many blessings from the family of God. And before too long, you will have reaped an attitude of disgust and frustration with the local church because it doesn't give you what you want. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 4. 
as Paul encourages the churches to be those who give, he says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches in Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you have accredited by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Paul knows that there's a church in Jerusalem who is suffering from famine and all the churches are pitching in on the first day of the week. They're collecting for the good of the kingdom. We see in Acts chapter 2 that when the church gathered together, there was a sharing that took place. In Acts 2, 44 through 47, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the number day by day those who were being saved. As we see in the New Testament, there's a, there's a church who has committed to generosity, a planned generosity, and, and lastly, this is it, a covenant commitment for preeminent generosity. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. They were committed to the tithe. They were committed to give their best, not their rest. They were committed to tithe to the Lord, not just tip the Lord what was left over. They had committed themselves to be part of a body that said, you know what, we're going to bring, we're going to, bring to the kingdom because we're going to put our money where our worship is. As I close, I'm going to read from Haggai 1, 2 through 6. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. When the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, is it time for you yourself to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. You know, there's, there's this idea that we work and we work and we work and we try to, we try to feed our kingdom. And sometimes it's just never enough, right? Clothes wear out. Things get worn out. We live in good homes. We have all the food we can eat, all the stuff we can drink. We have all of our fill, and yet we're just not satisfied. But a people who are committed to God know that he deserves the very best. It's a part of worship. So God is a covenant-keeping God. He is faithful we are called to be a covenant people who have a conviction to obey God's word. And we're called to be a covenant people who have a commitment to honor God in our worship.